0: Good afternoon, everyone. Good morning to those that are in different time zones. Um, thank you, Stuart, for the introduction. Um, and I'd like to thank the International Society of Biomechanics in Sports uh, for the opportunity to do this invited lecture. A um, bit of housekeeping before I begin. I'm obviously in my home. I've got a young child, so if you hear any screaming, um, I apologise. Uh, Stuart's asked me to keep the camera on, however... I believe it's probably going to get in the way of some of the slides. So if I turn it off and forget to turn it back on again, again I apologise before we begin. So today's lecture um, is going to be on cricket, bowling, and biomechanics. And I've tried to put a spin on it where we look at what's important for bowling, both pace bowling and spin bowling, um, a little bit of biomechanics, and then look into some of the technique and the research that's out there. Um, in particular what we've got, the research that I've been involved in. Before we begin, I thought um, it will be good to have a quick run for who I am for those that don't know me. Um, my name is Paul Felton, I'm a lecturer in biomechanics at Nottingham Trent University and I have been since September. Um, I was previously a research associate at Loughborough University where I uh, did my PhD, undergrad, masters, um, and then I stayed for four years as an RA. Uh, once I finished my PhD on cricket, um, working alongside the England Wales Cricket Board to try and develop some of the ideas within it. I'm currently the biomechanics module lead for the England Wales Cricket programmes. Um, coaching pro or coaching qualifications um and in particular i lecture on the specialist coaching program which is the program that all elite coaches have to have to become um head coaches in the professional game finally i'm also accredited as an icc um human movement specialist so if a player gets called for an illegal action um, and gets sent to the uk i'm often involved with Conducting these experiments or conducting these tests, even. Um, before I continue, I should probably apologize. I am recording on my laptop, so um if you see my double chin, I apologize. And if I keep looking down, um, it's because I'm looking at my screen. So that's me. Um, those that want to have more information, um, there's my Twitter handle free. I'm happy for you to try and contact me via that to answer any questions that might follow this. So the menu for today, I'm trying to provide something for everybody. I know there's a few coaches that are logging in um, to see what I've got to say around cricket. Um, So my aim is to try and discuss different bowling techniques, as I said at the start, using some biomechanical theory. I'm going to focus in particular on momentum um, and then discuss this with some of the recent relevant research that I've been involved in. So... The courses of this menu there's gonna be some biomechanics um, I don't want to get too heavily involved in that um, from a theory point of view but there needs to be some uh, there'll be some cricket um, but hopefully the two combined will make uh, either or of an interest for these for everyone that's viewing um, and if you're a bit unlucky like me and biomechanics and cricket is what you enjoy getting out of bed four in the morning then um, They'll be both and you'll be happy and hopefully uh, you haven't forgotten what them two things are, what bath being contained. Um, There's some research, so I'm going to try and put everything I say from a theory or an opinion point of view, I'm going to try and back it up with the research. been some requests online for some children's entertainment. So whilst I've been putting this lecture together, of having to look after my young daughter. Um, so every so often I've had to throw in a uh, few videos, pictures to keep her entertained and keep her quiet while I'm trying to produce this. Um, and those that know my research will either be disappointed or happy to know that there's no simulation models in this today um, it's got a cricket biomechanics focus away from simulation models which is a bit more bespoke and not available to everybody to use so to begin with i just want to recap go back to basics um, i'm just going to consider what the human body is and what it's capable of doing so We consider the human body to be a multi-segmenting system and we have a large amount of segments if we count each individual bone, Um, but we often split this up and break it down um, into larger parts, so um, 10 to 20 segments typically in biomechanics research to consider. Each of these segments still obeys the Newton's laws of motion, um, and they apply to each segment individually, but also to the whole system as a whole, so on the center of mass of the body. To move these segments, to move our, mus- uh, our skeleton, um, we have muscles and ligaments. Um, and these muscles are able to apply forces using um, our neuromuscular system um, and our brain to send signals to each of these muscles um, in turn when we ask them to to move. When we get motor patterns or motor control coordination correct, um, which we learn or start to learn from a young age, we can understand or remember how to balance and also how to undertake different tasks with varying complexity. So we start by trying to sit up, um, roll over, uh, walk, crawl. Um, and some unfortunate people in the craze a, few, well, a year or so ago decided to start doing this dance move, which some people are better at than others. Um, I just want you at this moment to have a look at this video and just look um, Consider the speed of the different segments. So we're going to look at momentum in today's talk, but I just want you to consider how the different segments have different velocities and how that relates to their different masses. Um, And we'll discuss this later on as to why this happens. So Consider in that video how, um, in what order should we move our segments to generate speed? So, sport um, often has an intended outcome of trying to do something as fast as possible, um, whether that be kicking a ball or throwing an object or hitting an object. We're trying to make the endpoint that impacts either the object we're trying to hit or what we're trying to release as quickly as possible. So, going back to hopefully some first year um, maybe even school physics we know newton's second law um, and newton's second law can be rearranged and to say the following that the amount of momentum an object has before an impact is equal to the amount of momentum after the impact and if we consider um, this practically we can consider or we can use demonstrate this using a newton's cradle Um, So in this video, we've got five ball Newton's cradle. Um, Each ball is of the same mass. Um, And if we apply some momentum to each of these balls, we can see how after the impact, the momentum stays the same. And this will continue until the Newton's cradle is interfered with again. So you can see if we take one bead, one bead comes off the other side after impact and it carries on backwards and forwards. Then if we double the mass and increase the momentum, we can see that the momentum on the other side matches the input. And we can continue doing this so we can do it with three beads or three balls. But every time the momentum before is equal to the momentum afterwards. So Give me a second to remove myself. Um, So we can see that the momentum is conserved before and post impact. Um, And the same happens in humans as we move or transfer momentum across our joints by the muscles that are acting on both segments. So if we have a joint, we have muscles that connect across a joint. Um, Briefly ignoring bioticular muscles for a second. But if... A muscle applies a force to one segment, Newton's third law provides uh, evidence to say that it will apply an equal and opposite force to the segment connecting the other end of the muscle. So we know that before and post these forces are applied, the momentum has to stay the same across these joints. So how do we generate momentum in the human body? So we know that momentum is conserved, but actually, what is momentum? So momentum is inertia times velocity, and it's a value which defines how much motion an object has. It's difficult to visualize um, other than with a Newton's Cradle. And also the second word in this equation, which might be unfamiliar to some people, is inertia. So what's inertia? Well, inertia is just the reluctance of a body to change its state of motion. Intuitively, we know inertia is mass. So in a linear direction, we know that things that are heavier are harder to move, um, and things that are lighter are easier to move. What's less intuitive, however, is how inertias are used in a rotational sense. So rotationally or angularly The inertia is known as the moment of inertia Um, and objects with large moments of inertia are more difficult to rotate than objects with smaller moments of inertia. So what does a moment of inertia mean? Well, a moment of inertia is just how spread out the mass is away from the axis which you're trying to rotate about. So many of you will know ice skating um, and will have seen this example. So you can see that when an ice skater tucks their arms and legs in, They rotate faster because you reduce the moment of inertia by pulling the mass closer to the axis of rotation. When they spread out their arms and legs, they then slow down. Um, Another example of this is if you try and turn around on the spot, it's very easy. But as soon as you try and pick up a wardrobe or something that's quite wide, it becomes much more difficult. It's because when in the process of picking up the wardrobe, you're increasing your moment of inertia. Um, And we know that objects with smaller inertias move faster, so both linearly and angularly, if your inertia is smaller, you will move faster with the same momentum. And this provides the basic underlying theory to how the human body should move for speed we should move the heavier segments so the legs and the torso to generate momentum and then transfer it across to the lighter segments, such as your arms and your hands or maybe you up one leg and down the other leg in the case of kicking. Um, so if we provide another demonstration or an experiment where we change the mass of the beads now um, and we start by generating momentum in the heavy bead. And we can see what happens as the momentum transfers the beads with reducing mass to the end point. So just watch the smallest bead and what happens. So if we provide an initial amount of momentum, we can see that it's transferred across the beads and the velocity has to increase as the mass decreases due to momentum being conserved and momentum being defined as mass times velocity reduce the mass we have to have an increase in velocity this process is referred to as multiple different things either sequencing and um, kinetic chain transfer of momentum or uh, oh, there's a summation sequence which explains how some sport in action should uh, set a base and then produce the movement for throwing or hitting. So, how does this all fit into cricket? Um, and I know some of you have probably sat there thinking, well, about time. So, I've gone and met Peppa Pig and George to uh, try and define what cricket bowling is, for those that I may not be familiar to it. It's a sport which is only played in um, a handful of countries. Um, So the aim of the game is for one team to bowl and field, and one team to bat, similar to baseball, except for it's played on a field, which is quite large, um, and... You bowl a ball on a wicket which is in the middle and you can hit the ball on both sides and run and there's no home runs, so to speak. But this example shows that the aim of the bowler, so Pepper in this example, runs up, lets go of the ball and it travels towards George who attempts to hit it. Now Stuart's going to talk more this afternoon about the batting element of it. But Pepper is aiming to dismiss George, um, and there's a number of ways you can do this. But as a bowler, you're trying to do it by deceiving the batsman, so they either miss the ball and get bowled, which is demonstrated in this picture. They hit the ball in the air and they're caught, or they miss the ball and they it hits their body in front of the wicket, and that can be given out as well. But we're not going to get too much into the rules of cricket today. Um, but ultimately, Pepper is trying to deceive George. There's also another rule that we must consider, which changes technique um, quite significantly compared to other throwing sports in the fact that you have to keep your elbow straight. So to explain this rule, cricket was developed as a sport where the elbow or the arm was meant to stay straight. Over various years uh, in the past, it was shown via research that this wasn't the case, that the elbow did bend a little bit due to the large amount of forces that go through the arm. And now the limit is that you're not allowed to extend or straighten your arm more than fifteen degrees between upper arm horizontal and ball release, Um, as demonstrated by these two or between these two pictures. This role, as I've just discussed, has had an impact on technique during it due to it reducing the degrees of freedom which we can use during the uh, kinetic chain to develop speed. Um, At this point, I'm going to define uh what i'm going to talk about is my bowling phases so lots of different people split up the bowling action into different parts for today's talk or for the rest of today's talk i'm going to discuss uh the pre-delivery phase which is the run-up and everything pre front foot contacts that includes back foot contact and i'm going to talk about the delivery phase being from front foot contact through to ball release Now, we can generate momentum during cricket bowling in two ways. We can generate linear momentum in the run-up, or we can de- uh, develop uh, angular momentum during front foot contact when the front leg hits the floor. And This is similar to javelin. I'm going to show you a video of SpongeBob. Um, Converting linear momentum into angular momentum to clear a high bar in a second, but also during this front foot contact to ball release, we're able to uh, produce additional momentum using our muscular forces. So the deep fry pole vault win this so if one. If we first watch the run up, up, up. Uh, it's its linear momentum, the plants, oh. and oh. angular momentum. Now, if we look at that big star, it's he does a similar thing. He runs out of his new engine, like and he's like hand. Now, i kind of trying to get an attitude of what happens in. in bowling when he lands and the whole thing flies over and releases the liquid, which weighs much less at a fast velocity towards the crowd. Taking this down simply into a model of two segments, upper and lower body, and please forgive me for this initial run-up. Um, angles of the legs and the body. I know it's not realistic but due to PowerPoint's inbuilt animation functions um, I couldn't get uh, my rotations to work because they only decided to let me do 90 degree rotation. So we develop linear momentum in the run-up and we try and maintain it through back foot contact. Uh, we swing the leg, in front leg into a position now in front of us uh, to provide a Breaking force, um, which when op- done optimally converts as much linear momentum to angular momentum as possible. We then use our muscular forces to um, produce a kinetic chain where we develop mem- momentum using uh, our muscles, and then this plus the angular momentum that we gain from front foot contact allows the Trunk and the arm to move forward, and the ball to be released, um, and the momentum transferred to a ball with small mass at high velocity. So this is similar to what we've just seen in the video with SpongeBob, um, where they run up, developing a linear momentum. They plant the pole into the ground, which converts the linear momentum into angular momentum. And then when he lands, um, it's a, uh, when he lands on the front fat handle and it flips over. Is a similar process to him applying a force which converts the linear downward velocity into a rotational velocity to throw the fat towards the crowd. We're going to talk a bit more about this now going forward in different methods. But ultimately, visually to display this, and I'm going to refer back to this graph a few times, we develop some linear momentum in the pre-delivery phase up to back foot contact, try and maintain it through to front foot contact, and then our linear momentum decreases as we convert it to angular momentum and due to the conservation of momentum these two should equal each other. So the amount of linear momentum you convert should equal the amount of angular momentum you gain. But also during this delivery phase we we can um, generate some additional momentum from our muscles. So we can build total momentum through the delivery phase. Um, and then we need to convert this momentum using a technique which sequences the body to provide as much of that momentum to the ball as possible to increase what we're trying to do, whether it be pace bowling or spin bowling. So Velocity is generated as the momentum transfers from the heavier segments of the torso uh, up to the arm and the hand and the ball um, and you can consider this again if you think back to the slide earlier it's exactly the same as how these beads work where we've got a heavier bead which you could consider the torso um, and then you've got the lighter beads which in the middle which could be upper arm or forearm and then you've got the lighter beads which are the hand and the ball. So in pace bowling, how does this work? So, the ultimate game of pace bowling is just to maximize the velocity in the sagittal plane. So, it makes sense then to try and maximize linear momentum um, within our run up in the sagittal plane. So, we try and generate as much linear momentum as possible in the run up. Now, you may wonder why I haven't built a line like this. Well, um, what goes on after the run-up um, through back-foot contact and front-foot contact is a consequence of how much linear momentum we've got. There's likely an optimum for each individual where if you run up too fast, you lose, um, you're unable to maintain the momentum through back-foot contact and you end up in a much worse place at front-foot contact than if you run up slightly slower and are able to maintain it. So. It's worth considering that when I say that you need to run up as quickly as possible, you do, but you need to be able to do it in a way which you can maintain it into front foot contact. At front foot contact, we have this conversion from linear momentum into angular momentum, and then we can generate some additional momentum using our muscles through the borealings. So we end up with a total load of momentum for fast bowling, which is similar to the diagram I've already shown. So what's the best technique to be able to sum this momentum towards the ball? So theory suggests that we want to generate as much of this linear momentum in the sagittal plane as possible, convert it to angular momentum at front foot contact, use as use the muscles where possible, and then transform it from the ground up. So I would expect the technique to look from the ground up to transfer the momentum through the sequence, So what does the research suggest? So Worthington um, et al. at Loughborough between 2006 and 2010 completed a PhD where he looked at 20 elite fast bowlers, um, which bowled between 75 miles an hour and 90 miles an hour or in other parts of the world, 120 to 145 kilometres an hour. Um, and did a regression analysis based on some key parameters which explained the variance in ball speed. So their outcome was that there was four parameters which explained 74% of the variation in ball speed. Um, and the fastest bowlers had faster run up so generated more linear momentum than uh, the slower bowlers. They had straighter front legs at ball release, um, which implies that they convert that linear momentum more efficiently into angular momentum. Um, they had more trunk flexion which suggests that this momentum and muscle forces is produced to pull the body forward and they had a delayed bowling arm. So ultimately this technique is uh, quite simple that you try and generate as much linear momentum as possible and transfer it to angular momentum and then the top half of the body holds onto the ball as long as possible to give you the most time to apply this momentum in, up the chain towards the ball and uh, increase ball speed. Um, and We can see this technique occurs uh, in most of the modern day great fast bowlers and the fast bowlers. I also want to just come back to this point that actually it looks quite similar to what we had um, from the Spongebob Squarepants example. So we've got this position at front foot contact and it f- simply with a two segment model can show what we think is going to happen. So I often get shouted at well, what about the other bowlers, the rotators, how do they work? So um, I've called them rotators and this will come clearer for the reason why on the next slide but the theory for why these do it slightly differently is there's likely to be either an individual limitation, which is a constraint, which means they can't develop as much linear momentum as the bowlers that bowl with the technique previously seen. Um, they can't convert it to angular momentum. So in this picture of Sean Tate, he bends his front knee. So this is an example where he may run up too quickly and he therefore can't efficiently uh, convert that linear momentum to angular momentum or he May not be able to um, run up as fast, develop as much linear so His techniques changed to um, maximize what he can do. And there's various different things which may limit this. So it could be strength, flexibility, technique, running speed. Um, But ultimately, they've got less momentum at front foot contact. um, And this allows them to then use more of their muscular forces through the delivery stage phase. Because they've got more time between front foot contact and ball release. So if we look at that from this diagram, we can see what the best technique is. Uh, If we remove them for the time being uh, and propose what these rotator bowlers do, well, they they generate less linear momentum, um, so have less linear momentum at front foot contact. But because they're moving slower at front foot contact, they have more time between front foot contact and ball release. Um, They then convert some of this linear momentum the same as the other technique but they have longer to therefore generate momentum using their muscles. So if we sum these together we can see that momentum or rotate for the rotator boulders has a similar path Um, where they lose momentum in the first part of the pre-delivery phase, but can gain some of it back in the delivery phase. What we don't know at the moment is how close can these get together? Can the rotator bowlers match the ball speeds of the best technique? Um, History would suggest that some of them can get up to those sorts of ball speeds um, that the the optimal technique can. Why do I think this theory for the rotator as well. We look at some research that I conducted at Loughborough, where we used 20 elite male and 20 elite female bowlers. Um, the females have significantly slower run-ups, um, and they lose more of their linear momentum through back foot contact than the males. They also weigh significantly less, so they have less. All of this weighs up to them having less linear momentum at front foot contact. Um, So this results in the females when we looked at the data adopting a completely different technique to what we see the elite males uh, or the fastest elite males adopt. So they develop momentum during the front foot contact phase using the large pelvis and shoulder rotator muscles, similar to how you would develop momentum in a throw. So is this similar to what the males do? Well, it's unlikely that technique is uh gender specific it's more likely it's linked to strength or uh individual constraints which prevent um the optimal the best of the optimal technique being achieved so our male rotators probably do the same thing but there needs to be a lot more research on this um but what's clear is that one size doesn't fit all in terms of fast bowling coaching and in particular it doesn't seem right to coach females the same as the elite males um, and there might be a relationship here between using momentum and using strength to develop or generate balls um, finally on fast bowling how what happens to the ones that don't look like they're trying so the boomers and the joffra archers of this world where people just state well they don't look like they're really trying well they probably are trying but you get an added bonus from a physiological advantage such as elbow extension. So, elbow extension is when the arm goes past straight, and there's a couple of pictures that show you this example. Um, and you're allowed to extend as much as you want past straight without it counting into part of the elbow rule. Uh, a piece of work I did for my master's showed that the effect of elbow hyperextension on both release these speeds. So, an elbow hyperextension of 20 degrees can provide an increase in ball speed of in excess of 5% compared to a bowler. So if you have a bowler bowling at 90 miles an hour and he can't hyperextend versus a bowler that can bowl at 90 miles an hour with 20 degrees of hyperextension, the bowler bowling with 90 degrees of hyperextension is going to bowl at 94.5 miles an hour. So you can see how big an increase this can provide when you get to an elite level. Um, And 20 degrees is probably about what Joffre Archer is in this picture. However, Boomer has a significantly greater elbow hyperextension, so potentially great, to great even greater benefit from it. So the reason for this is you've got an extra joint to transfer momentum and increase velocity. So we're adding in that degrees of freedom again. Um, another question often asked is, shouldn't taller, heavier bowlers bowl faster? well the theory is that momentum is equal to inertia times velocity so heavier objects have more inertia so if they have the same velocity they'll have more momentum but it's harder to move uh, heavier objects they generally don't have as much velocity and we also know that longer objects have more inertia because the mass is spread further away from the center of mass so they're harder to move so ultimately taller boulders need to be stronger to generate the same amount of momentum and we know that strength doesn't scale linearly with height or mass, so there's likely to be a height and weight limit on potential momentum based on the individual strength so first bowlers need to be strong and well conditioned um, which the s and C's will like but ultimately the taller you get this doesn't necessarily you're going to bowl quicker in fact you might there'll be a tipping point where you start to get slower i 'm um, just going to finish off for a couple of minutes, and now i 'm sort of getting over time, but cricket bowling also exists for spin bowling, and we need to develop velocity in two different directions which are outside the saddle plane for spin bowling. So if we start with off spin um, what 's the best technique for off spin? Well the theory suggests that we 're not going to need as much linear momentum in the run up because we 're not trying to develop pace purely towards the batsman anymore. Um, And we're going to look to use them large hip and shoulder muscles similar to the female bowlers to generate uh, velocity through the bowling action. And we need to find the technique again, which best allows us to transfer this momentum from the ground up into spin or into the ball. So if we compare spin bowling uh, momentum to fast bowling, it's quite different. So the linear momentum is no longer important. Um, and it's quite easy to maintain this amount of linear momentum through back foot contact. However, we have a much, um, and again, the conversion doesn't matter as much, but we have a much greater time to generate momentum using our muscles, and this is where the majority of our momentum in spin bowling is generated. So We can see that it's quite different, Um, and it's an exaggerated example of those rotator bowlers that we saw. So what's the best technique for off-spin? Some work that I was co-supervisor on by Liam Sanders investigated 23 elite finger-spin bowlers, um, and they found that 43% of the variation in spin rate could be attributed to the pelvis position at front-foot contact. So those bowlers that had a pelvis position which was more front-on at front-foot contact had higher spin rates. Now this doesn't mean that you want to be completely front on, it means you want to be in front of front on. And What we found was that actually led to an optimal front foot contact position. Some of the other parameters linked to spin rate were the shoulder position at front foot contact and the maximum x-factor at this point. So you want to maximize x-factor and your pelvis position is a byproduct of this but you don't want to allow your shoulders to go side on. So this front foot contact position is highly individual based on the amount of flexibility you've got and the x-factor you can generate. But you want to be able to keep this upper arm behind or in front of side on. A further follow-up piece of work showed that this position was highly individual and that flexibility of both the shoulders and the pelvis were linked to spin rate in this cohort but if we compare these results to the five leading test match wicket takers for finger spin bowlers of all time we can all see that they're in a similar position at front foot contact in their own way where the shoulders are about side on but the pelvis is rotated forward to maximize the x factor the body should then uh, Rotate sequentially, so the pelvis should move forward, then the torso, then the shoulders, and finally the forearm should pronate. Why does the forearm pronate? Well, this keeps the finger in contact with the balls for longer, and it's similar to other sports such as American football. So if we watch this video, we can see that the last finger to leave the ball is the index finger, and it's exactly the same with exactly the same technique. In off spin bowlers, and this is why off spin bowlers can get in so much trouble with trying to keep their elbows straight, is that the natural uh, method to spin a ball is to throw it with this technique. Finally, leg spin, um, and I'll be quick. Uh, we know that the underlying momentum theory is the same. Um, but what's the best technique for leg spin? Well, this research is quite new or in its infancy, so as part of Liam Sanders' PhD, um, we collected some data, but it is ongoing still. But we believe that the pelvis and shoulders are important, and there's likely to be a difference of how the shoulders and the forearm work based on uh, the need for the spin to be in the opposite Uh Prime merit or pilot findings have shown that Based on ten elite finger spin bowlers, um, the pelvis and shoulder rotations are significantly different. Are significant uh, leg spin uh, rates, but uh, very different to off spin. So you tend to leave your pelvis and shoulders behind. And a recent paper published by Spratford shows a similar results. Shows similar results, but they and they also went further and showed shown that the shoulder and the wrist kinematics and kinetics are also linked to spin rate. More research definitely needs to be done in this area. Um, but one thing's clear that off spin and leg spin should not be coached similarly. So in summary, I've given you some biomechanics and hopefully some theory on momentum. I've proposed how we build momentum during different cricket bowling styles and why considering them to be the same may not necessarily be appropriate. Uh, I've looked at some techniques to determine what's the best movement sequence for each of these bowling actions. And to transfer momentum generated from the, uh, from the run-up and through the front-foot contact uh, is. And I've discussed why some cricket bowling, especially in fast bowling, looks different and why individual variations need to be taken into consideration when coaching and applying biomechanics. Um, finally, I'd like to finish by saying sorry for running over time. Um, I'd like to thank anyone that's, met, uh, that's contributed to this work that I haven't mentioned, um, and apologies if I haven't put your name in here. Uh, I'd like to thank all the people, the cricket research out there that I haven't mentioned. Um, it's played a big part in where I am today reading the research that you've done, and no offence by leaving some of that out. And I'd like to thank all the cricket coaches who I get to impart this knowledge on, but whose knowledge also has informed a lot of what the work I do. Finally, Thanks for listening. I'm sorry it has run over time. Um, I'll be on uh, after to answer any questions. Um, and please don't forget that Stuart's going to teach Pepper and George about batting next. Thank you. Um, and please don't forget that there's these presentations next week. I'm really looking forward to Johannes um, and Wouters. So please. Do-